news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Have you started thinking about your summer goals? Are you hoping for some accountability to help you stay motivated through the summer heat? Join Author Accelerator and the hashtag AmWritingPodcast for a free weekly writing challenge. The 2022 Summer Blueprint Button the Chair Challenge will include 10 episodes hosted by certified book coaches, Jenny Nash and KJ Delantonia. In each episode, Jenny and KJ will give you an actionable step to take to further along your manuscript or revision. You can also sign up for weekly reminder emails to help you stay on track. Each episode will include interviews with other experts across the publishing industry about their writing journeys, all to keep you inspired, motivated, and ready to write all summer long. Learn more and sign up for the challenge by visiting authoraccelerator.com slash writing. That's authoraccelerator.com slash writing. Welcome to another Books with Hooks, our last one until August. We're taking a break over July as we rest up, recharge our batteries, and come up with even more amazing content for you. We'll have one more bonus episode coming up this Monday, the 4th of July, after which we'll be playing some awesome episodes from our archives that you might not have heard yet, or perhaps you need reminders about. 
For those of you who have submitted two books with hooks for guest agents, we haven't forgotten about you. We'll be catching up on those in August. And if you have submitted, just know that we're just beginning to start on the May submissions, but we'll get to all of them when we're back as soon as we possibly can. All right, Carly and Cece, let's dive in. Carly, would you like to begin with your first one? Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I'm thrilled for this opportunity to get your feedback. Thank you for your podcast and generosity and sharing your expertise with aspiring writers like me. Nothing energizes my writing life quite like one of your episodes, and for that, I am indebted to you. Rose Fenimore, a lonely children's librarian, is searching for a gift from her dead grandmother. For unknown reasons, Grandma Letty hid the gift somewhere within their Midwestern town's Gothic library. A cross between castle and cathedral, Rose has inspected its every corner and carefully researched its anonymous owner, S.C. Falcon, who is rumored to possess dark magic. Rose is terrified she'll fail her grandmother, her only lifeline to familial love, but then receives a letter from Falcon and makes an unexpected friend. She is soon plunged into fantastical book worlds that present a series of tests she must pass to secure her inheritance. Along the way, she befriends a funny and dashing man named Jasper, who helps Rose in her quest, but as they grow closer, she suspects he's more involved with the library and Falcon than he lets on. Rose must persist through paralyzing self-doubt and conquer each book or forever be cut off from Grandma Letty and her inheritance. Even more devastating, she may never meet Falcon face-to-face, the only living person who allows Rose to feel like herself. And if she does meet Falcon, will he outshine Jasper, the man who is slowly stealing her heart? Dream Read is a 66,000-word contemporary fantasy reminiscent of The Midnight Library and The 10,000 Doors of January. I have a bachelor's degree in English from Brigham Young University. I'm a mother of four young children, and writing this book felt like pure escapism, especially when I got to sneak away and write in my favorite place, the library. Thank you for your consideration. Thank you. Okay, what did you think of that query letter? All right, I actually just read The Midnight Library, so this kind of world and topic, this kind of fantastical element of it is is on my mind. So this is perfect timing for me to read. So the first thing I would say is this is... This is definitely my taste. It is somewhat industry standard and I'll kind of explain why, but this is my taste. I really prefer the title, the word count, the genre, the comps at the top of the query letter. And I know I always say this and some people are probably like, why does she always harp on about this? But I just need to know these facts to kind of frame my understanding and my reading of the query letter. So if somebody is to put them at the bottom and, and some people do like them at the bottom, some agents do, and, and that's perfectly fine. But if I do see it at the bottom, I'm just letting you know, I'm going to scroll to the bottom of your query letter to read it because to me, that's what I want to know. And then I'm going to scroll back to the top. So just so you know, every agent has their own taste, but that's why I like my I like to know that at the top because I'm going to find it in your query letter first, no matter where it is. And I'm going to read that. And then I'm actually going to read the query letter after that. Okay. The next thing is this, this world is so interesting and fantastical. And there is so much actual kind of meaty plot happening here that I would cut the words in the the third paragraph that say things like self-doubt and feels like herself. And some of those more feelings type of words, I would really just focus on kind of the more plot hook elements of this because they're really interesting. And I just don't really feel like that adds a lot to the query letter because we we understand, you know, through the grieving process and, and everything going on in her life and the fact that she's lonely, we get all of that. So I just don't really feel like we need that, the self-doubt, the searching, you know, those kind of words. I would probably, you could probably even cut that, that third paragraph to a certain extent, if you fold it a little bit into that, into that second paragraph, but overall it is very, very interesting. Like this seems really interesting. The only, the only thing I, I wonder is sometimes when there is a, a, a fantastical world, I want to know like 
why this world, right? Why if any of the worlds that this author could have built in any of the worlds that the character could have fallen into, why specifically was this the world that you built? And so I, you know, there's always that question of like, why does this character have to go down this route? Why are these all, why are there all these loopholes for in order for her to get her inheritance? We don't want to make it feel like, again, these, these puppeteer strings are, we're able to see the puppeteer strings and we're able to see the scaffolding. We don't want to see that, but I kind of, I'm just curious about this inheritance. Is it money? Is it like a physical object? Is it, you know, spiritual? Is it, you know, mythical? Like what, what is this? And, and why does it matter to the reader that she finds this, right? What are the consequences of her not finding this inheritance? Because if it's something like money, okay, she's kind of seems to be fine as she is, right? Like obviously everybody likes a big, you know, dump truck of money backing up into your driveway. Right. But, you know, again, she's getting on fine without it. So why, why does she need this inheritance is a big question for me. The other thing is, is Jasper Falcon? That seems like an obvious kind of connection to me reading the query letter. If he is or isn't, you know, I'm just letting you know, that's the way that I'm reading the query letter. So I just want to give you that, that grain of salt that I'm assuming potentially that Jasper is Falcon. Thank you. Okay. What was in those opening pages? So we open with Rose coming into the library. So she's kind of describing the library. She, there's a very kind of like Gothic opening because it's a very kind of dramatic building. She's wearing kind of a dramatic look. She has dark cranberry lipstick, you know, high heeled stiletto shoes. So we're getting a very, a certain type of very clear imagery here, which is, which is great. So she kind of, she comes in this Gothic building. She is, she has an envelope with her. And it has a kind of a, a crimson wax seal on the back. And she she's about to open it when her, somebody comes up to her and says, the docent this morning called in sick. Can you fill in? So we get the idea that she's not a visitor at the library. She's an employee of the library, but maybe she doesn't have to be working that day. So they're trying to get her to fill in. So she has to kind of put this letter aside. And we, we know from the author says today she had a letter from SC Falcon. So we know that this is presumably, or she interprets it to be Falcon's letter, but she can't open it because she has to get to work. So a docent is somebody that's going to, you know, show you around the building. There's, you know, docents and art galleries, that sort of thing, docents and libraries. So she's, she's showing them around kind of doing a little tour. And they ask everybody on the tour starts talking about Falcon and we get this information about who Falcon is and the kind of mythology around him. And a lot of dialogue has Southern accents. So we're trying, we're, we're understanding kind of, this is a more, this is a Southern environment, a Southern Gothic environment. And, and that's where we end. What was your feedback on those opening pages? So I really, really liked the writing. I loved that it was really specific, very eerie, very well kind of crafted and calculated. All of the word choice really felt like it had a certain time and place and, and energy and, and kind of that, that gothic mentality, which I really, really, really loved. There's a couple of things that I wasn't clear about in the opening paragraph. I actually stumbled a little bit about where we were. So we get the idea that she goes into the, the library. It says on her way to the checkout counter, she inspects her makeup in a compact mirror. This is when she kind of describes the lipstick she's wearing. And then it says it wasn't until after she checked her phone and greeted her grandmother's photograph in a silver frame on her desk that she saw the letter. I was, I was a little bit confused about like whether she was at home or whether she was at work. So I think I would just make it really clear that like, this is her place of work as opposed to, you know, this is her desk at, this is her desk at home. And then she's on her way to work. 
that kind of stuff. I, I stumbled mentally about kind of figuring out the organization of that. I would just make that a teensy, teensy bit more clear for everybody. The next thing that I would work on is, so our character, she, you know, she announces herself as the docent. She's standing there kind of ready to give this to her. I felt like it was just way too much info about Falcon. I really would have liked us instead of just like her standing on the steps, kind of fielding all these questions for everybody, starting to move through the library, starting to kind of get that energy going and just not have to tell everybody so much about Falcon or hear all the dialogue chatter of everybody in the background talking about Falcon, because all of this is about him and there's nothing about her. And she's our main character, right? She's the one that we want to spend time with. She's the one we need to care about. And obviously Falcon already is this mysterious character, but I just don't think I would prefer not to know as much about Falcon and keep it more of a mystery and know way more about Rose at this point. So I just felt like that was real estate that was maybe just misdirected a little bit. Ali, thank you. Okay, Cece, will you read us your first query letter? Let's do this. So, dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I'm a huge fan of the podcast, especially the books with hooks section. I'm writing to seek representation for Miriam's Baby, my 70,000 word book club novel. The novel, which will appeal to fans of Fleshman is in Trouble and My Year of Rest and Relaxation, follows a couple through love, separation, pregnancy, and loss. After eight years of marriage, Jake decides to leave Miriam. He's exhausted by her uncontrollable temper, her poor hygiene habits, and her strict observance of Jewish law. The day after Jake announces his decision, however, Miriam calls with complicating news. She is pregnant following years of miscarriage and failed fertility treatments. The couple seeks advice from a therapist, Dr. Shoshani, who helps them process the painful and unspoken trauma lurking behind their failed marriage. Four years ago, under Miriam's watch, their infant daughter died by suffocation. Over the course of the therapy sessions, Dr. Shoshani abandons her professionalism. She begins an affair with Jake and even plots to become secretly pregnant by him. By the end of Miriam's pregnancy, all three characters must confront their divergent desires. Miriam, who was once terrified of living without Jake, realizes her ability to thrive on her own. Jake, who insisted on the separation, yearns to return to Miriam. And Dr. Shoshani, who is healing from her own late 30s divorce, must choose whether to act on her morally dubious scheme, which would forever transform the lives of Jake, Miriam, and their unborn child. The novel takes place over the course of Miriam's nine-month pregnancy. Each of the three main characters, Jake, Miriam, and Dr. Shoshani, narrates three months of the story. I am a writer and historian at the University of Redacted. I've published historical narratives in places such as Redacted. Miriam's Baby will be my debut novel. Thank you for considering my manuscript. Sincerely, name Redacted. Okay, what was your take on that? I really, really love Fleshman is in Trouble. Taffy's novel is one of my favorite books ever. So whenever someone uses that as a comp, I'm always excited to read further. I did also really enjoy the structure, the fact that you're telling the story in, you know, throughout the course of her pregnancy and dividing it in between the three main characters. I thought that was really fun, too. It reminded me of another book called The Heirs, which does something sort of similar. And I really, really enjoyed that, too. I do think that in terms of the plot paragraph, the sentence that begins with by the end of Marion's pregnancy, I worry that it's revealing too much. 
not of the plot, but of the interiority. So for example, do we need to know that Miriam realizes her ability to thrive on her own? Because in my opinion, that's only relevant if it's a jumping off point to a further plot complication. But here it's presented as the end of the road. That the same goes for Jake's yearning to return to Miriam. So I'm not supposed to know the end of the road. I'm supposed to know whatever happens right before the climax, which is going to make me wonder, you know, oh, what's going to happen? And not like a final decision, <laughs> something with, you know, still the, the last act to go. So I'm worried that you kind of told us the ending, although I'm not entirely sure if that's the case, it's because it's all based on interiority. That's my only note. I would revise that plot paragraph with, with that in mind. Okay, thanks for that, Cece. Could you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? Yes. So we start in Jake's point of view. Jake and Miriam have a dinner reservation at their favorite restaurant and they're running late. Miriam calls Jake's name from upstairs and asks him to bring toilet paper. He complies and through inner life, we understand that her tone to Jake sounds more like command than request. When Jake sees Miriam in the toilet, he is reminded that his shrink claims that Miriam's bodily habits his words, are not the real reason he wants to leave Miriam, but Jake isn't so sure. Again, they go to the dinner at their favorite restaurant where everyone knows them, and he quite directly asks for a divorce, and she tells him, okay, then I want you to leave. I want you to go to a hotel, and he checks into the hotel. We find out that the idea to ask for the divorce at dinner was, was the shrinks, and he checks into the hotel, and towards the very, very end, he thinks to himself, you know, well, if only our problems were as mundane as Chandler, Rachel's, and Monica's because he's thinking about friends. And if only Miriam returned to shaving, if only we hadn't lost Eden. And that's where the five pages end. Okay, so what was your take on them? So my big picture note is that the pace is moving really, really well here. It's it's quick. And a lot of authors struggle with pacing, especially in their first five pages. They try to do so much that it really just feels like you know, we're, 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 we're dragging our feet. This does not feel like this at all. It does read more like commercial fiction than upmarket fiction. Of course, it's really hard to tell with five pages, but that's the impression I'm getting. My big picture note is that we're missing emotionality and inner life. So for example, he seems way too sure that he wants a divorce. I personally feel that a little ambiguity, a moment of hesitation would go a long way into making him more authentic and just fleshing out his character. I don't mean that he actually can't be sure, but even people who are very, very sure, they still have like a a spark of doubt because we're in his head. We get to be privy to all the sparks. This is especially true because even though he's 100% sure, he's not looking forward to anything. We didn't get a single thought on, I don't know, is he now going to be able to travel because maybe Miriam is afraid of planes and now he'll get to do all the traveling or maybe he will... I don't know. What what are his future plans? If someone is so sure that they want a new life, then they're typically fantasizing about this new life. So even one line about that would just, to me, add believability, especially because this is like my third reason for why we need more in our life. He's not thinking about anything practical. Like when you get a divorce, you think about, are you going to have to sell the house? What are you going to do about money? Money is a huge factor in, in divorce. It's just the real world. Even if you're super well off, it doesn't matter. And he's not thinking about any of that, which is odd because if he's unemotional and not thinking about practical things, then I just don't like, I don't, it feels like we're not being privy to what's in his head. And that is why we have books. I really want to know as examples of how to elevate the writing here. So there's two descriptions of Miriam. And in one, he refers to her, he, Jake, as, you know, Miriam being young, a skinny Kim Kardashian, and then currently as an Armenian Hillary Clinton. 
And that's in like five pages. So to me, it's the storyteller's job to describe the characters in a way that really just uses the tools that you have, which are words. I would recommend not using celebrities to describe your character. And if you're going to do it, just do it once. Don't do it twice because it's it's just a bit too much. It's not like it's it's just repetitive. I also wanted to know what did make him fall in love with her. We have a lot of comparisons between her physical self, but nothing about, you know, what made him fall for her to, to begin with. And there's not a lot of him because the scene where he asks for a divorce he says, I think we should get separated first and then get a divorce. I thought that was weird because even if legally speaking, that that are that you know that is what they have to do, people just say, let's get a divorce. I, you know, especially because he didn't go through any of the other next steps. But but again, even if he for some reason this is important, like maybe it's an important detail for later, when she responds, he we get no inner life on how he feels. There's one clue that he said, which is I repel my tears when he's checking into the hotel. And I just felt like, you know, were you surprised by her reaction? And, you know, asking him to stay at a hotel? Was he not surprised? I guess I wanted to know. And I wanted to know because I'm curious, which is a good sign. Okay, Carly, we're going to you now for your next query letter. Will you read that for us, please? Dear Carly, Heather Ryan is reborn 78,000 words is a humorous, heartwarming upmarket story with light speculative elements about a failed empath, Heather Ryan. Written in Heather's unique and unforgettable voice, this novel delves into the awkward humor found in Gail Honeyman's Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine, the millennial plight in Emily Austin's Everyone in This Room Will Someday Be Dead, and the light speculative elements in Mona Awad's All's Well. Heather's mother, her only companion, is now dead. Heather lives in a bachelor apartment that overlooks the Trans-Canada Highway, and she's a socially inept, emotionally stunted 28-year-old virgin stuck in a dead-end job with a less-than-average salary. In a last-ditch attempt to resuscitate her mediocre life, Heather signs up for a rebirth experience. While stuck in the middle of the woods inside a homemade adult-sized birthing canal, i.e. a dog's agility tunnel, Heather must face the facts of her life that she has no one and she has nothing. Except the longer she's stuck inside the birthing canal, the more convinced she becomes that the answer to her life's quandaries all lie in the mystery behind her estranged father, her unusual genetic abilities that she received from him, and the news that she has not one, but 11 half-siblings. Perhaps in order to unlock the true potential of her empath gifts, Heather needs to search out the family her mother hid from her and finally learn that to be an empath, Heather needs to access her long ago buried feelings. With awkward humor and emotional honesty, Heather Ryan steps into the role of the flawed heroine that our post-pandemic world desperately craves. Heather Ryan is Reborn is a novel that asks us to question the role our genes and births play in defining our destinies while simultaneously exploring the complexities and nuances of female bonds. I graduated with a letter of distinction from the Humber School of Writers under the mentorship of Marina Endicott, 2021. I also worked with Jen Sukfong Lee at SFU's Writer Studio Program, 2019, and have mentored exclusively with Jennifer Manuel since we met while I was completing Sarah Selecki's short story intensive program, 2014. My short stories have been published in numerous journals, including Carte Blanche, Toronto Quarterly, Maple Tree Literary Supplement, and Bywords. I was a finalist for the Three Max Short Fiction Prize. When not writing, I'm a busy 40-year-old mom with two small children and two large dogs. Thank you in advance for considering my submission for the podcast. Below are the opening five pages of my manuscript, Best Lindsay. Thank you. 
Okay. What was your take on that? I really like this title. And I actually was really trying not to laugh out loud when I was reading this query because I find it just so hilarious. The Like I almost burst out laughing when I was trying to say, well, stuck in the middle of the woods inside a homemade adult-sized birthing canal. So freaking funny. And we always say on the podcast, like, mm, are you really funny? But like, okay, then you show up and you're actually funny, right? So there you go. You, you get to be funny because I, uh, I almost burst out laughing during this. So I really feel like we're at the hands of somebody quite masterfully talented. And I'll tell you why. There are so many elements of this that could be so internally focused. And yet we've come up with this big external moment with a big physical event kind of metaphor. So the plot can really dig into something. So I just love that there's actual like a vehicle, like a plot vehicle created here. And I'm not sure how quickly this kind of birthing canal incident happens, whether it's more like inciting incident or halfway through, but there's a moment here, right? To kind of use this as a vessel, pun intended, to kind of explore all of these, you know, all of these feelings and thoughts and in different kind of directions. So, so yeah, I, I, I thought this was all very well done. So the next thing that comes to my mind is what about this is slightly speculative and what about this is kind of more like Eleanor Oliphant kind of thing. Cause I do think that Eleanor Oliphant comp is good because when we get to the pages, I'll kind of explain, you know, and, and you'll be able to see kind of why, why that's an obvious comp, but I'm, I'm a little concerned that we are bridging the speculative elements potentially with this character being neurodivergent, or if that is, I'm just not sure what kind of connection we're trying to make between her being socially inept, emotionally stunted, 28 year old virgin. And then when we read the pages, you'll kind of see, you know, that, that social awkwardness, is that because of the empath and the speculative elements, or is it something that's more neurodivergent? And I'm just trying to figure out a little bit more about this character, maybe hoping that it's a little bit more clear what exactly we're trying to get at with these kind of social awkwardness moments. And I guess I'm I'm just stumbling over that because I just kind of want to understand this character better and just kind of know how we're going to kind of side with her emotionally. Or again, if this is going to be a, a kind of a speculative side swipe in terms of us going kind of into another dimension. So those are kind of some things I'm thinking about. And the line about Heather Ryan steps into the role of the flawed heroine that our post-pandemic world desperately craves. I love that you're kind of thinking about that, but honestly, the post-pandemic reading, we cannot predict what anybody wants post-pandemic reading wise. Like as agents, we're just like every week, we're like, what do editors want? We don't know. You know, what do readers want? They want who knows what, right? Whatever book talk tells them this week. So it's hard to just make a a statement like that our post-pandemic world desperately craves. I love that you're acknowledging it, but also, I don't know. It, It seems like... Like it's a bit hard to kind of make any assessments about that right now. And then for the author bio paragraph, you know, I thought you were taking your craft super seriously, obviously like laying out all of these kind of accolades and, and different ways you're kind of networking and, and learning your craft. So I thought all of that was great. So what was in those opening pages before you give us a critique of them? Okay. So we open with our character here getting a letter. She says, I had my life before registered letter and after registered letter. So she get the letter says, dear Miss Heather Ryan, we regret to inform you the passing of your father. He has left you his estate house in Mont-Tremblant. You're expected at the house Saturday, May 10th. We will meet you there. Address and keys enclosed. So, so that's kind of the, the letter, the letter that she gets. And then we take a step back to kind of watch her get the letter. So somebody comes to the door. She's kind of in a, in a robe on brushed teeth. It's like four o'clock in the afternoon says sign here for your letter. And she goes, I've never received registered mail. And then so she's kind of trying to 
develop a relationship with this person who's dropping off the registered mail letter saying, come on in, you know, I'll bake you muffins, come into my house. And yeah, and there's just kind of this awkward rapport. And then the neighbor across the hall has to like come out and be like, hey, you gotta let this lady go. She's just dropping off the letter. And then so now our character kind of figures it out. Okay. And then she goes to the grocery store and there's a cashier there that she hasn't met before. So she kind of starts chatting to the guy, Justin, and they're kind of having a rapport there. And the woman behind them in line makes a joke about her and kind of her awkwardness. And then she feels bad. And she says, I'm human too. She says, quietly pick up my grocery bag and, and turn to leave. And then on her way out the door, she sees this flyer, which is this rebirth thing. So it's, wouldn't you like a fresh start, heal the wounds and begin again, visit our website, 613 reborn and kind of has this ad for this rebirthing experience that we heard about in the query. That's where it ends. What was your take on those pages? Very strong Eleanor Oliphant vibes, kind of, as I said, we're watching her in social situations. We're watching how she interacts. We're watching how the people around her kind of interact with her. And so that was, you know, just, just really interesting. And I didn't feel like the humor necessarily came at the expense of her. I felt like she was in on some of the jokes and the jokes were kind of told through her POV, but we do kind of feel bad for her when the woman behind her in line at the grocery store, you know, kind of makes fun of her. Obviously that doesn't feel good, but we know we're on a very interesting ride with this character absolutely because one of the things she says to the the woman who was dropping off the registered letter is come to think of it i've once received a restraining order that was delivered in some official manner too that was years ago though simple mixed messaging girl likes boy boy doesn't like girl you know how these things go so like we know that she gets herself into situations that are odd and unlikely possibly illegal <laughs> getting herself into some restraining order situations right so so we get the sense that She's interesting. She's different. Her mind works a little different, but she's funny. You know, she has a sense of humor about it. She is somewhat self-aware even in these interactions, but she still can't help herself from getting into these interactions, which again, I think I'm curious about what about this is empathic because in the query letter, it says she's an empath, which in fantasy world writing, that means like she's a, a different type of being. And then what about her is more Eleanor Oliphant and more neurodivergent. And so that's what I'm trying to figure out in my mind in terms of reading this character and, and figuring out who she is. All I know is we're in for a really, really interesting ride because clearly she's going to she's going to get up to some interesting things. Holly, thanks for that. Right, Cece, Nat, over to you for your last query letter. Dear Ms. Lira, we are seeking representation for Don't Walk Alone, a 78,000-word memoir with themes similar to The Girl Who Smiled Beads by Clementine Wamaria and the real-life version of the plucky, triumphant heroine in The Girl with the Louding Voice by Abi Dare. Don't Walk Alone is a story about mothers and daughters and what it means to be safe when you can't run away. Argentine Imani Rakunda is not like anyone else in her village. She cannot walk, and she lives high in the hills of eastern Congo, where walking is the only way to school or the market or any future at all. Full of spunky determination and unaware of the simmering tensions in the region, young Argentine throws herself from one dangerous situation to the next, sliding down muddy slopes in the rain and dodging herds of cattle that threaten to trample her two-foot-tall body. It is only when armed men appear in her village that Argentine realizes that her mother has been trying to hide her from more than just cows. As Argentine comes to understand the extent of her own vulnerability in a region plunging toward war, she must also confront the cost of her mother's desperate attempts to protect her. 
Despite her father's opposition, Argentine convinces her mother to leave their family and embark on a 150-kilometer journey to the bustling city of Goma in search of treatment for Argentine's legs. Soon mother and daughter are separated, the city where they sought refuge is destroyed by an erupting volcano, and they are surrounded by rebel soldiers with murky intentions. With their lives and their family at stake, both Argentine and her mother must confront the question of how far they are willing to go to protect one another. Don't Walk Alone is co-written by Argentine, Imani Rakunda, and me, Don Hurley. The work is born out of years of friendship between us and multiple shared languages. I first met Argentine 15 years ago while living in Congo, and I have been looking for ways to amplify her unique voice ever since. Together, we start a small sewing group for disabled women and built a customer base that has followed us through refugee camps and ultimately sponsored Argentine for resettlement in Canada, where she lives now. This is our second book. Our first book, The Place Between Our Fears, was self-published. It was selected as Book of the Month for Women International. You can learn more about us at our website. Thank you so much for your consideration. Sincerely, Don Hurley in Argentine, Amani Rakunda. Okay, so I think that's our first submission we've had from an, an author duo team. So, so that's interesting in itself. What was your take on that? It's, it's truly a spectacular query letter. The hook in the very first paragraph, um, what it means to be safe when you can't run away, is very powerful. I didn't have any context to understand what that meant in terms of Argentine's specific situation, and yet it landed with a force that really just made me want to keep on reading. The story seems incredibly compelling. The plot paragraph is perfect. Everything is perfect about this query letter. <laughs> My one advice, because you do mention, as you should, you know that your first book, The Place Between Our Fears, was self-published. I looked it up and I think other agents are going to as well. And the description was very similar to this. So I would clarify how this memoir is different from the self-published memoir, if it is. And I would clarify that in a significant way. So beyond something like, oh, this is a new point of view. The first book is, you know, Don telling the story of meeting in Argentine, because if it's all focused on Argentine, uh, a new POV, in my opinion, would 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 not be enough to clarify all the differences. And yeah, and that's really my only note because it's pretty spectacular. Okay. Could you give us an indication of what's happening in those opening pages? Yes. So story begins with, you know, we, this is obviously through the protagonist's eyes, Argentine, and her mom is sweeping sticks from the yard when a cry rises from the village. They know this cry usually comes in the dark. There's panic. The neighbors are leaving. The protagonist and her two young brothers are scared and their mother is pregnant. And so the protagonist is thinking, how could mama with her round belly carry Tara, Espoir, and me? She is the eldest. She's eight years old. And she thinks to herself, you know, if only I could stand up. We know that her father is not home. He was never home. It's just her mother and her brothers and obviously herself. Her mother does manage to pick her up, sliding her onto her back and grabs the two boys, you know, each in one hand. And they start, they start running as well, but the protagonist assumes they're going in one direction, the direction where I assume they have gone before. We don't actually get that information, but that's what I am assuming. However, the mom runs to another direction, to a place where apparently there's no food, so they won't survive. And the protagonist is feeling really scared. 
we once they're up on the hill, the hill that you know the protagonist didn't know they would go to, they hear nothing except for the chirping of birds, and the mom hides the two brothers. And the protagonist is asking, well, why aren't you hiding me? And she's like, you'll make too much noise. So I, I know I can't hide you in the same place as your brothers. And the mom almost immediately says, I have to go. And the protagonist is wondering, no, don't leave me because I won't survive without you. I'm, I'm not hidden. And, and she says, I have to go because we, we, we will need food. We'll starve up here. We have nothing to eat. And so, you know, her mom settles branches in front of her face and leaves. And the protagonist is left behind feeling really scared. What was your take on them? This is really well written. The language is excellent. I do want to say, and this is not me being picky, I just want to warn you because I'm sure you'll submit this to other places. I think there's a word missing in the very first sentence. It reads, I always felt warm. Mama was home. I'm assuming when mama was home is how it's supposed to read. It's really not a big deal in the grand scheme of things, but because it is the first sentence I wanted to tell you. I I definitely felt like this is polished and the writing is really thoughtful and it was structured really intentionally and really carefully. What I think is missing is interiority and emotionality because it does seem like this is not, like it doesn't seem like we're in her head. It seems like she told the story to someone else and someone else wrote it. And possibly I think this because I know that's what happened. I'm obviously, I might be being biased without realizing it, but I really don't, I have reasons for this. So for example, we do get information that the, the cries usually happen at night. So they know what the cries are. And I'm not getting any information on the last time this happened and how long it lasted. And because that is going to inform her expectations now. We get panic, we get fear. There's a lot of fear, but we're not getting anything else with any specificity of life context. So it had been months. This usually doesn't happen in the summer. I don't know anything, anything that would show surprise and show context of, of, of her life. Another example, when we reach the, the hill and, you know, she says it's, it's only the chirping of birds and her mom does decide to leave quite immediately. Why is she leaving so quickly? Like, I understand that they'll need food, but they don't need food right then. And I'm assuming the village is still being attacked. So I was confused as to why her mom made that decision. And maybe we're not supposed to know because we're not in the mom's head. But her confusion about the timing, I think, should be clarified. And if it's not confusing, if for whatever reason food does need to be secured right away, then I think we need that context. When her mom says, I can't hide you with your brothers, you'll make so much noise and leaves her in in a more vulnerable position, does this surprise her? Is she used to being treated differently in this way? Has her mom made it clear to her that, you know, if she has to choose, she can't save her because it's just not something that she can do? Or is she completely shocked? We do get a lot of inner life with her saying, without my mom, I won't survive. Like, I think there's two or three mentions of this. So this is something that at eight years old, she has internalized. How and when did she internalize this? So is... Is this something that was said to her specifically and directly, or is it something she overheard? You know, maybe adults talking or kids teasing her. I guess, you know, the thing about interiority is that it's sort of like a time machine. We might be living a specific scene that a camera could capture, but what, where's our mind in that moment? I wanted to know where she was in that moment. And all of her interiority is only about what is happening on the page. There's no connection to last year when this happened or the fact that maybe she was looking forward to something two days from, from this, this scene, and now the fact that this won't happen and the disappointment from that. So that is what I mean when I say it doesn't feel like I'm in her head, because 
the only way that I feel like I'm actually connecting to someone is if I know thoughts that no one else knows about. And what are what's on the page right now feels like things that I would expect her to feel. I'm not getting any insider information, if, so to speak. And, and I really, really wanted that. So that's my big picture note. I do want to say, like, the writing is very, very polished. The, the author did a really great job of, like, isolating sentences for effect and choosing some really excellent verbs, which just shows how thoughtful and, and, and careful she was when, when writing this. And, and yeah, and it's it's just generally really good. Well, Cece, thanks so much. Well, thanks so much to you both. I'm looking forward to us coming back again in August and starting this up again. So now let's go to today's special guest. Hi, everyone. It's Cece. Question, what's the biggest difference between a book and a movie? If you listen to the podcast, you already know the answer. It's not that movies have things like special effects or soundtracks or even actors at their disposal. It's that books allow us to be inside someone's head to experience their inner lives, which is why the ability to write a character's interiority is so important. With that in mind, I've developed a webinar called Writing Interiority, Revealing Your Character's Inner Life. Join me on August 18th via Zoom to learn all about the foundation and functions of interiority, including how to leverage interiority into plot points. We'll cover techniques on how to effectively convey a character's inner life in a way that keeps the reader turning the pages of a story with lots of examples from some amazing books. And of course, we'll have time for a Q&A. Writers of all genres are invited to attend as knowing how to write interiority is a superpower useful for all storytellers. For information on how to register, please head over to my Instagram or Twitter page, click on the link in my bio, and follow the instructions. And don't worry, if you're busy on August 18th, register anyway, because the class will be recorded and a recording will be sent to everyone 24 hours later. I hope to see you there. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. and We have bilingual friends and francophone friends, so it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously, and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. 
It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Before we go to today's guest, I've had quite a few people reaching out to ask if I'm offering courses over the summer, which I am not. But for those of you who missed any of my courses that I ran before, they are all now up on my website. The recordings are available there for purchase, along with all the materials and everything that you need. So head to biancamaray.com, look under the courses tab, and you'll be able to find it all there. Now, Today's guest is a New York Times bestselling author who earned international acclaim for her first novel of suspense, Harvest. She introduced Detective Jane Rizzoli in The Surgeon and Dr. Maura Isles in The Apprentice and has gone on to write numerous other titles in the celebrated Rizzoli and Isles series, most recently The Mephisto Club, The Keepsake, Ice Cold, The Silent Girl, Lost to Die, Die Again, and I Know a Secret. Her latest standalone novel is the thriller Playing with Fire. A physician, she lives in Maine. It's my pleasure to welcome Tess Gerritsen. Tess, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My mother and sister-in-law were hugely excited to hear I was interviewing you. They are both in South Africa, where you have a huge following, by the way. And if you make it big in South Africa, you know you've made it big. (laughs) 
Just for our listeners, it was while Tess was on maternity leave from work as a physician in the 80s that she began to write fiction. Now, in 1987, your first novel was published, Call After Midnight, a romantic thriller, which was followed by eight more romantic suspense novels. But it was your first medical thriller, Harvest, that was released in hardcover in 96 that marked your debut on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow, Tess, that kind of longevity these days in publishing is rare. And one, I'm fascinated by the fact that you were allowed to slowly build a career and a readership back then. Because these days, if you don't get like a bestseller within book one, that's it. You don't get your second book deal. So can you tell us a bit more about your transition from romantic thrillers to medical thrillers? Well, you're right. It is a, a, it is a long, long career, over 30 years now. And I would say that the reason for the longevity and the fact that I'm still working is that I was willing to change publishers when I needed to. I've been published by, oh, I have to think about that, at five different publishers over the years. And each time uh, you start to feel like your career is slowing down or, they're, or they just don't want your next book, maybe it's time to go looking elsewhere. So that's part of how I've managed to keep in the public eye. And the other thing was I was willing to keep changing genres or write what I wanted to write. I started off, as you mentioned, with romantic suspense novels. That was because I loved reading the genre and I still do. But then I got an idea for a medical thriller and that was as you mentioned, Harvest. And uh, I think after four of those medical thrillers, I got an idea for a crime novel and I switched to that. That became quite big. But in the interim, I've also done other things such as historical novels. I've done a science fiction novel. I've done a ghost story. So it's just a matter of never stopping writing a book maybe every year or two years. And the longer you live, the more books you have read it. That backlist will help keep you, I guess, alive as a writer as you continue to pursue your stories. Yeah. And these days, there's so much pressure put on writers to build your brand, build your brand, which is why I love hearing that you have written all these different kinds of things, because this is what makes us writers. We are fascinated by so many different things and we don't do well when we put into boxes. We, we want to let our imagination go. You're absolutely right. I, I never thought about building a brand. I mean, to me, it was always, well, what's the next story I want to tell? It just happens that the brand found me, I suppose. When I wrote the first book featuring Jane Rizzoli, she was a minor character. She was supposed to die. That was supposed to be a standalone book. I wrote the next book because I wanted to see more of Jane Rizzoli. And then I wrote the next book because I wanted to see more of uh, more Isles. Before I knew it, I had a series with two women investigators. It was never planned. It was never something that I imagined I would be doing, resulting in Isles 13 books later. It just happened, and it's because I was interested in the characters. And I think when you're interested in the characters, your readers are as well. 100%. And I love what you said about moving publishers. And I feel as women writers, we're especially, we have these feelings of loyalty. Somebody gave us our big break. Therefore, we need to stick with them for all eternity. And we've had Jane Green on the podcast, and she said the same thing. You need to pivot. You have to keep kind of reinventing yourself. And it's your career. So at certain times, you have to be ruthless about that. Did you, have you had the same agent the whole time? Or have you also changed agents along the way? Well, I, I have 
have to credit my agent because I'm not a ruthless person. I'm, you know, I, I would probably write a publisher all the way into the ground just because I, I do have a, a very strong sense of loyalty. But I have an agent who's there to advise me. She says she'll say this is this publisher is not going anywhere with you. It's time to move or this publisher is not giving you the support you need. It's time to move. So I, I really I trust her judgment above anybody else's. And the times I did publish, for instance, when I was doing romantic suspense, it was with Harlequin Intrigue. So that that is a very niche publisher. And when I went on to uh, major thrillers, I had to move to a different kind of publisher. That was that was the main reason I changed the first time. And you'll find as you have a long career, you have these ups and downs. Some of your books will start to do well and some of them will start to fade away. When you get to that, what we call the death spiral, where your next book doesn't sell so well and the book after that starts to be even worse. And because of the, of the bad sales, they start to print fewer and fewer copies. That ends up being a self-fulfilling uh, failure. You need to get out of that spiral. And one way is to change publishers, find a publishing house that is ready to relaunch you. Yeah, and another reason why those agents are so important, because like you say, I'm like you, I'm not naturally like that, but we need people to help us go. Loyalty is one thing in certain relationships, in others, when it comes to your career, you need to think more strategically. Right. So as we've said, you've been writing Boston homicide detective Jane Rizzoli and medical examiner Maura Isles for more than like 20 years now, pretty much. What's that like writing two characters for so long? I mean, most marriages don't even last that long. The thing is, I don't always write those books because um, even though I have been writing Rizzoli and Isles for like, as you said, my gosh, it's been, it has been 22 years now. I have written other books in between. That's why I've only added up to 13 books. I think that part of the reason is that you, you need a vacation from these characters every so often. You need to get away and write something completely different. It's not what your readers necessarily want, but it's what you as a writer need to do just to keep yourself refreshed and ready to come back to these characters. I can understand why Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock Holmes. And I think I've actually written a blog post about, about why he felt the need to. He was sick of these, of these characters. They, they felt more like a cage than people. And every so often I do think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done with you girls. I want to go do something else. And you take that little break. You write a ghost story or you write a historical novel. And then maybe you're ready to come back to Jane and Maura. That's, that's how I felt, especially with this book. I mean, it's been a while since I wrote the last one. But this one, the one that the character that drew me back was really Jane's mother. Yeah, super fascinating. And I can imagine you having this conversation with them like, Jane and Maura, it's not you, it's me. You need to see other people for a little while and then we'll come back to it again when we're not feeling quite so stagnant. Yes, yes. It, and it can feel like a prison because you know, when I when you write a book that's out of the series, your readers go, what are you doing? I want Jane and Maura back. And you feel as if you're you're there to serve the fans as opposed to serving yourself, your own needs as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. Do they still surprise you at all your characters or do you feel now that you know them so well that nothing they do surprises you? Um, occasionally they, they will surprise me. Uh, this book I don't think, well, we see a part of Maura that we haven't seen before, which is um, we know that she plays a piano. We know she has a piano in her house, but we never knew how good she was. And so this time we get to see her in performance with an amateur orchestra on stage. And I can see more about 
why she's so much like me. Mora is, she's a bit of a perfectionist. She doesn't like to be publicly humiliated. And so she's terrified about playing the piano in public because she's a featured soloist. And we get to see some of her stress and, and also the fact that she has hidden this part of her life from her friend Jane. So when Jane finds out that Moore is about to perform in an orchestra, she's a little, little ticked off that she wasn't told. Uh, that, anyway, that's a little bit of a bit of conflict between them. The real revelation in this book was Jane's mother. Now, Angela Rizzoli has been in the series from the very first book. We know that she has been a devoted wife and a mother. And then somewhere about, uh, I can't remember which book it was, her husband leaves her for another woman. Now Angela has to find the resources to be alone again. She has to find out who she really is, aside from being a wife and mother. And over the last couple of books, we've, we've seen her grown. Now in this book, she really takes over. And we find out she's also a pretty good detective. Yeah, she's, she must have been a delight to write because such a delight to read as well. And their dynamic, that mother-daughter dynamic, the push and pull, the tension between them as well, absolutely just sparkles on the page. And that was actually something I was going to ask a little bit later, but that leads us to that because people tend to think that thrillers are more about the plot and what happens and the the red herrings and solving the things. But honestly, with you, what your readers keep coming back to time and again is the characterization and loving these characters. And for our listeners who are all emerging writers, there's a paragraph that I'm wanting to read here that just shows how brilliantly Tess shows characterization on the page and what it means. So here we go. Jane straightened and turned to survey once again the modest home of the woman who had lived and died here. Sophia Suarez, who were you? Jane reads the clues in the books on the shelves, in the neatly lined up remotes on the coffee table. A tidy woman who liked to knit, judging by the magazines on the end table. The bookcase was filled with nursing textbooks and romance novels. The collection of a woman who saw death in her job, yet still wanted to believe in love. It's such little, it almost feels like throwaway lines, but these are the things that build up characters. Can you speak a bit about that when it comes to your own writing? How you approach characterization. You're, you're absolutely right. It's what people think they're reading for the plot, but they're really not. They're reading for who these people are. And I mean, think about when you watch a television series, what brings you back to the series? It's the people. It's the characters. You want to see what happens to them. So on the surface, they seem like thriller novels. They seem like forensic thrillers. They seem like, oh, it's a murder we have to solve. But it's really about who are these people in this particular universe. And when I introduce a character, I try not to keep them blank. I mean, sometimes the first the first draft, I don't know who they are. They come alive in the second and the third draft when I began to see little subtle differences in the way I had pictured them at, at the beginning. I think that what helps me is that I don't outline things. I don't do biographical sketches before I start to write. I meet these characters when I first put them on the page. And at the end of the book, I know more about them. And then the real character comes out in the second and third and fourth draft. I love that because I'm the same. I always say I write to figure out what's going to happen and who these people are. If yes. I know that beforehand, I'm not remotely interested in approaching it. And I also love that it's layering that happens draft upon draft upon draft because you're excavating these characters into life. Um, absolutely. I love, yeah. love that your process is like that. 
Um, well, I think of it as, as meeting somebody for the first time. I mean, I'm a real person. You, you, you meet them for lunch or for coffee. And what you know at the first meeting is what they look like. You know how old they are. You know their gender. And you pick up things as they talk. You learn, to, you learn from their speech how, how big a reader they are. What is their vocabulary? You learn their accent. And then you learn uh, these funny little things they do with their coffee spoon. So that's your, first, that's your first impression. And that's how it is when you first meet a character on the page. But as you get to know these people over months, as they come over for dinner or as they divorce their husband, you find out who they really are. And that's the fascinating part about not just fictional characters, but real people. And something else that really comes alive in your work is very subtle social commentary, because (laughs) we as your readers have grown with you over these many years. And I find that there are many writers who have written over 30 years, but How they wrote 30 years ago is kind of the same as how they write today. And they don't pay much attention to how the world is changing. And what I love about your novels is you can see, Tess, that you pay attention to the world around you. You're paying attention to what's happening and to the times. I mean, we have one scene very early on where the detectives have to go and speak to a young black teenager to get information from him and his mother's just like hell no I'm not letting you through the door I know what happens to sort of black teenagers when it comes to the police and it's something you very subtly reference but clearly it's important to you to be taking notes of these kinds of things can you speak to that as well I would not have written that scene that way 20 years ago because I was not aware I, I was not as you would say woke but I think that after George Floyd And I think I was writing this book during the Black Lives Matter protests. It just opened my eyes. And I thought, wow, if I was the mother of a Black teenager, I would be just like this woman in the book. I would be protective because I would know all the things that can go wrong. So that particular scene, even though it's told from the point of view of Jane, Jane is also sensitized to these things now because she has also seen what I have seen. So what I loved about that scene was that you can see that Jane has grown. You can see that when she talks to this this boy, he's 14 years old and a possible suspect, that she's sensitive to not being misinterpreted, that she's sensitive to her own possibly being biased against the kid because of his race. So as I've grown, Jane's grown. And I've become aware of social issues that I was unaware of before. They they work their way into the stories. They have to. 100%. There's often readers who are like, don't bring your politics into the book. Your job is to entertain us. Don't write this kind of thing. But you do it really subtly. It's in there. Some readers are not even going to pay attention to it. Others are going to stop for a moment and go, oh, that's interesting. It's something I've never really thought about. So this is the great thing as someone in your position is you are not just entertaining, but you're making people think, which is, you know, amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't think of it as a political comment so much as a more of a, we're just more aware. I like to think that when I write a story, it's really all about how are these characters surviving in this world, in this changing world? And maybe it feels political, but for this boy, it's a matter of survival. 100%. Yeah. So in terms of all of these storylines that you've had going for how long? Do you have some advanced software that helps you keep track of all the timelines of when when that one did this? Or do you just go old school and you have like cue cards? How do you keep track of all of it? I don't have any software like that. What I have is I have copies of my books on the shelf. and I can go back and open them and go, how old is Regina again? When did she, ha- when was she born? And I get, I'm sure I must make mistakes. I mean, I don't really know if I make mistakes. 
mistakes. I just think, well, she, okay, she must be about three and a half years old now. So then you write from there. And it's hard to keep track, but I think the major plot changes, such as marriages and divorces and relationships, you have in your mind, you know, you know what happened the last time you went out with these characters. I'm sure that your copy editor has probably got a thick folder of all these things so that they can be sure that they're keeping track of all of it because they don't have your steel trap mind. So they're the ones who kind of pick up all the mistakes, which is amazing. So if they don't, the readers will let me know afterwards when it's too late. <laughs> Isn't that always the case? You get this email and it's like, you said this, but in fact, it was this. And you're like, oh, gosh, shit. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know. Well, you know, that's the thing. You get reader mail about a lot of mistakes you make and you don't know the mistakes you've made because you're not, you don't know enough to know that it's a mistake, but they'll let you know. <laughs> I love that you also referenced Ooh. COVID in the book. Yes. It was, you know, it's the states of someone's lungs post COVID, et cetera. And, you know, we're hearing from publishers, don't allude to COVID, readers don't want to hear about it, et cetera. But in this kind of book, there was no way you could avoid it, right? Right. Well, I don't want to read about COVID. so I I didn't want to write about COVID, but you have to just assume that it's a post-COVID world. I want to leap ahead past the last couple of years to what the whole world went through and just move on with their lives. So I refer to it in the past and partly because the character is a nurse. So when Jane and Frost go into the hospital where she worked, they're both, she's reflecting on the fact that this house was a killing zone last year, that people were coming in and dying and that this nurse, because of the autopsy, you see that she has some scars left over from pneumonia that she suffered through COVID. But that's, it's really um, not part of the plot itself. It's just a, a reference to real world. Yeah, it was it was subtle. And again, it would have been weird if the nurse hadn't contracted COVID. Yeah, so, yeah and it, I think the other interesting thing is how we all have changed in terms of we used to shake hands. We don't, I mean, a lot of people won't shake hands anymore. They'll just kind of wave or touch elbows. And, and that's that's how Jane now greets people is she doesn't necessarily shake hands. Yeah. Well, our time's almost up, Tess. I'm not sure how that happened. But for our emerging writers who are listening, what advice do you have for them? Whether it's about your process, whether it's about a writing regime, whether it's about a mindset, many of them are trying to get their work out in front of agents and get representation. What advice do you have for them? Well, on on the creative side, before you ever even think about an agent, I think it's important to give your permission to write badly. My first drafts are horrible. Don't feel that you have to stop and, and make it perfect in the first three chapters because you'll end up just revising those first three chapters again and again and again. So allow yourself to write badly. Allow yourself just to get the story down first. And once you finish the first draft, the second, third, and fourth, that's when the layering comes in. And that's where the characters come alive. In terms of overall success of a career, it's important to keep on writing. Once you finished a book and it's and you send it off, start on the next one. I think what has kept me going, what my career is, is based on, is longevity. It's longevity and continuing productivity. You don't have to write five books a year. One book a year is good enough. And most of us can manage that. So productivity, feel free to write badly and just don't stop writing. Excellent advice. Thank you so much, Tess. For our listeners, get listened to me. We will link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. And Tess, we hope to have you back for the next book. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? 
Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. 
The handle is at CCLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.